Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Srinu, this, this thing was, was the thing you want to sell, right? Because um, the first thing I learned as an artist, like don't admit your mistakes with your price, right? Like, I, like if it's something I hate, you won't be able to d- discern that from the price tag, you know? Uh, so so uh, she was willing to pay full price for this thing. And all she had was an Amex card. And I couldn't take an Amex card and I lost a sale. And I was just angry. And I looked at my iPhone and I was, you know, talking to her on my iPhone. And my attitude towards my technology is that it does whatever I want. And so my iPhone was this magic device that always turned into a, you know, it turns into a book or a TV screen or a, a map or it turns into a compass or it turns into a flashlight. Like it, it turns into anything that I want it to. And it didn't, at the moment that I needed it, turn into a credit card machine. So I was like, Jack, this is what we got to do. Like we need to make this thing turn into a credit card machine so I can get paid. That was square. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jim, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be fun. I am beyond thrilled to have you here. So you have a book out called The Innovation Stack, which uh, is one of those books that I kind of tore through and highlighted and underlined. And as I mentioned to you before we hit record, I had to reschedule because I left the damn version I had in the US and I'm here in Brazil. Um, But before we get into the book, I wanted to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing with your life and your career? So my dad was uh, the dean of the engineering school at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and he was an academic uh, chemist, uh, a polymer chemist, actually. And uh, my mother was a housewife. She, before uh, marrying dad, was a journalist. And uh, my parents met on the East Coast. So my mother actually was a New Yorker um, and grew up during the Depression in New York, uh, the daughter of a German brewmaster. So um, I I mentioned that only because my grandfather was a brewmaster during Prohibition. So they basically had no way to feed the family. So he worked for the mafia during Prohibition, brewing illegal beer in Yonkers, New York. Uh, So (laughs) so that was mom. Right. (laughs) And then dad was this academic. Um, But I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, my my folks were just fantastic 
fantastic people. And I, I miss them dearly. They're both gone now. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your dad uh, was an academic. My dad is a college professor, so I kind of probably have some familiarity with the way that you were raised. Um, what was the narrative about education and making your way in the world uh, in your household? Uh, and how in the hell does the son of a dean become a glassblower? So uh, it was funny. Uh, so first of all, education was always just assumed. It was never discussed. Like it was like, where yeah. are you going to go to college? <laughs> I can relate. And, and, and I just applied to one school. I applied early decision to Washington University um, because, you know, my dad was on, uh, was, was on staff there. So I got to go free, which is a fantastic, I mean, it's a phenomenal school. I probably would have gone anyway, but it was also free. And I was like, oh, great. Free education. Check the box. One application done, you know? Um, and so I went into, uh, I, I went through like basically assuming that I was going to get a PhD. So the big shock in my family was that I didn't get a doctorate. Um, and uh, yes, there was another shock when I told my dad that I wanted to uh, you know, study glassblowing. This is when I was still an undergraduate. And dad said, um, oh, yes, that, that can be very useful. Uh, and and he was very supportive. Well, of course, he thought it was scientific glassblowing. You know, he thought I was going to be, you know, <laughs> making uh, uh, distillation coils and, well, you know, probably bongs. But, you know, the idea yeah. here is that uh, the glass blowing is a vague term. And uh, he thought I was doing the scientific part. And I did the part where, uh, you know, we didn't make bongs, we used them. Although I never did. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I speak cavalierly of drugs. I've never used them. Like I, I used Which once in my life. funny to like, me because like, you know, when you said, well, when you said wash you, I'm like, isn't Animal House based on wash you? It is. It is. People don't know that. But yes. Uh, Harold Ramis uh, wrote, Wash, Wash, uh, wrote Animal House based on some of his experiences at Washington University. Yeah. <clears throat> well, OK, so, <clears throat> you know, I think that that's so fascinating to me that, you know, like you have this very academic, you know, background with your parents you kind of assumed you're going to get a phd and then you become a glassblower and i remember the first time we met a glassblower i was traveling in europe i think it was in barcelona and like any idiot the first question we asked her was do you know how to make a bong and she's like that's literally the first thing that everybody asks so what in the world goes into the actual craft of glassblowing because i mean i've seen very elaborate bongs as a, a berkeley undergrad i've seen my yes, first of, of them and they're like works of art you look at them and you're just like wow you know and while you're busy using it to get high it rarely crosses your mind that wait a minute somebody sat in a studio somewhere making this thing and probably spent countless hours to make this one thing that is not scalable in any way at all but really in a lot of ways the epitome of sort of, you know, true craftsmanship. So I took glass blowing just for fun and got mesmerized by this material. So glass, when it's hot, is like it's alive and it's glowing and it's moving and it never stops moving. And if, if it stops, you're, you're basically gone because it'll cool down and crack and sometimes explode. So, so you got to watch the stuff and it's very difficult to manipulate. And what it does is uh, because you can't really touch it um, with anything, you certainly can't touch it with your hand, but you also can't really touch it with too many tools because the tools then mark the glass. So it's this dance of just balancing heat. You sort of selectively heat the parts that you want to move. And um, I mean, there's a show called Blown Away now on Netflix where, you know, all my friends are out blowing glass and, you know, trying to knock each other off the off the show each month. But uh, there's a very interesting 
culture around glass. And I think it captures people's imagination because it's so damn difficult. Like I've been doing it for 30 years. It still frustrates me how little I can do with the glass. Hmm. So I wonder from that sort of um, really, you know, what Kelly would probably call deep work, what sort of habits you have brought into your day-to-day life as a technology entrepreneur that have been influenced by glass blowing. Because one thing I think I've realized after, you know, 20 plus years, you know, outside of college was that so often there's all these things that you do that seem completely unrelated. And then suddenly you start to be able to connect dots with, oh, I know how to do this because of that, or I'm interested in this because of that one random experience. Yes. Well, glass is a big deal for me. Um, and it, it, it's in a, a half dozen levels, and I could talk about this for your entire show and then some, but uh, just to not bore the listeners, I'll tell you that sort of the two main things that I always think of in, in the glass world, which is one, uh, the experience is so um, subconscious that I have to get into a state of flow in order to do it. In other words, if I'm making my complicated pieces, now there's stuff I can bash out with, you know, almost no sentience, but like if I'm actually doing my, my tough work, the stuff that's really difficult, I can only do it if I don't think about it, um, which means I can't be stressed out. So there can be, and, and it's funny because I'll, I'll open up um, the annealer. So when you make a piece of glass, you have to cool it down. You put it in a box called an annealer. And that you, so you don't get to see the work until the next day. And I will come in in the mornings and I'll think, oh, I've, I've made some great stuff. And I'll open up the annealer. And I'm like, it's all clunky and heavy and thick and bad. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's bothering me? And I'll look into you know, what's, what's going on in my life. It's like, oh, I'm stressed out about that. Or, oh, I couldn't relax. Or, oh, I didn't get a good like, it's It's like my sort of uh, physical psychotherapy. So mm-hmm. uh, glass and flying airplanes are the two things I do where if I'm doing them, my mind does not wander. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm flying a plane or blowing glass, at the end of the day, my head is just clear. So it's it's just this therapeutic thing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about glass is that it is a very, very stern, unforgiving material. It shows every mistake, especially if you're making clean work. And I make very, very sort of clean, um, precise work. And I can tell, and it, it never lets me off. So it holds me to an objective standard. And I love yeah. that because so many times, and you know, you can kind of phone it in. I mean, I, I, hell with Zoom now, I mean, my God, the number of Zoom meetings where I'm just like not there, oh, <laughs> you know, but glass doesn't allow that. It makes you show yeah. up. Wow. So, what is the trajectory from glass blowing to co-founding Square with Jack Dorsey? Because that does not seem like a linear trajectory at all. No, no, it's it's the path of a pinball. Um, so <laughs> I graduated from Washington U's engineering school, uh, immediately started a tech company. We built software. We had an early competitor to, to Adobe Acrobat's product. And uh, guess how that one went, right? You know. <laughs> A little company in St. Louis versus Adobe. Well, we lost. Um, but in the process, uh, we had a business that uh, that started publishing CDs of uh, trade show materials, which this was pre-internet. And we got into a, a, a great business because we were taking this fantastic amount of paper and just putting it on CD-ROMs. And, uh, you know, people were paying us to scan documents and put them on CDs. 
the business grown like crazy. And then the internet comes along and, and I see the internet is going to wipe out our business. I was the CEO of the company and I got everybody together and I said, okay, guys, look, this, this, this thing called the internet is coming and there are these things called websites and companies are not going to have brochures. They're going to have web pages. And as soon as that happens, we're dead. So we've got like 18 months to pivot this company into something else. And I knew what we were going to do and nobody would follow me. Like nobody at the company. I mean, they all said they'd do it, but I couldn't get my troops to follow me because they were so used to making so much money the old way. They would always go, yeah, Jim, yeah, Jim, we'll do it the new way. But I gotta, I gotta, just got to nail this sale. I got to do this. I just want to do this one more thing. And they couldn't get themselves off the old stuff. And so the only person who would listen to me was my 15-year-old summer intern. And his name was Jack Dorsey. Yeah, Jack was like, okay, what do you want to do? And I told him, I was like, okay, let's do it. So, so Jack and I went off by ourselves and basically rebuilt the company. Um, and then sure enough, the internet showed up as, as expected. Um, the company cratered. I fired basically everybody. Jack went back to school. I mean, he was in high school at the time, but he went off to college. Um, but we saved the company. That company still exists. As a matter of fact, it's moving this week to new offices. Um, but you know, here we are 30 years later, a company based on the early work that Jack and I did when he was uh, in high school and I was in my twenties, um, mm. is, is still around. And, um, you know, that led to a friendship. Um, it then, you know, we wandered our paths. Jack became a massage therapist. He, he wandered around, he, you know, got some tattoos and, uh, started Twitter and then they kicked him out of Twitter and uh, the first time, uh, and, and he called me up, uh, and actually, he didn't call me up. Uh, how did I, I guess I called him up because I was trying to build an electric car. All right. So I was, I was, in the, I was trying to build, this was pre-Tesla. And I was like, we got to build electric cars because nobody's doing it. So I was starting to build an electric car. And I called Jack up because I knew he hated the automobile industry. Uh, we reconnected. He told me about Twitter. Um, and uh, he's like, hey, look, if you still want to do the electric car, that'd be cool. But if you don't, why don't you start a new company with me? And I was like, well, that sounds like more fun than building an electric car company. So I said yes. And then the question was, well, what are we going to do? And the only thing we knew was that we weren't going to do anything in social because, you know, Twitter was sort of been there, done that for Jack. And mm -hmm. so we started casting around for ideas. And I was in my glass blowing studio one day. Um, I was actually moving out to California. I was packing up my stuff. And this lady called to buy a piece of glass that I had had sitting on the shelf uh, for years. And it was ugly. I mean, uh, 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 this, this thing was, was, it's the thing you want to sell, right? Cause, um, <laughs> the first thing I learned as an artist, like don't admit your mistakes with your price, right? Like I, like if it's something I hate, you won't be able to d discern that from the price tag, you know? Uh, so, so, uh, she was willing to pay full price for this thing. And all she had was an Amex card and I couldn't take an Amex card and I lost the sale. And I was just angry. And I looked at my iPhone and I was, you know, talking to her on my iPhone and my attitude towards my technology is that it does whatever I want. And so my iPhone was this magic device. It always turned into a, you know, it turns into a book or a TV screen or a, a map, or it turns into a compass or it turns into a flashlight. Like it, it turns into anything that I want it to. And it didn't at the moment that I needed it turn into a credit card machine. So I was like, Jack, this is what we got to do. Like we need to make this thing turn into a credit card machine so I can get paid. That was square. Wow. 
Well, obviously, you know, that first question raises multiple other questions. You open the book by saying that patterns are funny things for you can see them your entire life without noticing them. But once you finally notice, they appear everywhere. When I learned to notice this pattern, it was like finally seeing the world in three dimensions. I was looking at the same objects, but now everything had depth. My enhanced vision revealed even more patterns, patterns that have changed the world. What I want to know is why did you have the foresight to see what the internet was going to do when half the damn world didn't. I mean, the music industry is a ghost of what it once was because they kept fighting it. Um, and I only know this because I probably downloaded every single CD that I was ever thinking about buying for one song on Napster. I still remember. I literally went to Rasputin in Berkeley, wrote down the names on a yellow legal pad of all the CDs I had thought about buying and went home and downloaded all those songs on Napster because I agreed that it was bullshit that we had to pay so much for one CD. And my sister to this day gets on me about this because I made her buy the Rembrandt's um, tape and told her the whole album was good, which was all bullshit um, because I wanted that theme song from friends. And of course, she never trusted me again with how she should spend her allowance. <laughs> but, you know, you learned a valuable lesson in sales, right? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I, look, I'm not I'm not omniscient. I'm I'm Far from it. I mean, look, I started a tech company before the dot-com bubble, and I didn't ride the bubble. Like my company was off in this niche, getting its ass kicked by the internet. So, like, I saw it coming and knew and didn't know what to do about it. Okay, uh, and Square was not omniscient. I mean, Jack and I, when we started Square, we didn't have this this great vision. I only saw the pattern after Square. So, what led me to see the pattern, which I describe in the book, and which I hope other people will see easier than I did was that there is this different path to creation than I was taught, than I believed. And, and it's not this sort of, you know, flash of genius where all of a sudden you see the future. It's this bumpy iterative path, which is really messy. Um, but in fact, the behavior in that world is different. And I know we're probably going to go through this for the next couple hours. So I won't. I won't try to jam it all into one quick answer. But, but what happened to Square was we got attacked by Amazon, and Amazon always kills startups they attack. That is one hundred percent true when we were attacked, and it was ninety nine percent true after we were attacked because we were the only exception. We're the only startup that I ever know that Amazon went after. Now, no, look, Amazon can fight Google all day long. Fine. But when Amazon attacks a startup, the startup dies or the startup becomes part of Amazon. And uh, in 2014, when Amazon copied our product, we thought we were dead. And yet we survived. And after surviving, I then questioned why. Like, why did we? Because, you, you know, you, like if you get lucky, that lucky, uh, it probably wasn't luck. Like, you know, there was probably some other force that protected you. You just don't understand what that force is. But, oh, you know, here it is. And so I started looking for it. And then I saw this pattern and I was like, oh my God, it makes sense. It, it, and, and, and then all this other stuff that I didn't understand, which was like how Southwest Airlines could become the biggest airline in the country by charging super low fares or, you know, how, how Ikea could, you know, become the world's dominant, you know, furniture store. And nobody uses the Ikea model. Like you think, oh, Ikea is so successful. There'd be five copycats, but there are zero, you know? And it's like, why is that? And, and all of a sudden, this formula I saw, I was like, oh my God, it makes sense. And then I got to write a book about it. Mm. 
Wow. Well, you know, I, I wanted to bring back a clip from an episode with Julian Smith that was in 2014. And, you know, as I was going back through your book, it just kind of reminded me of this clip, which I feel like this clip in particular really fundamentally has shaped how I think about the internet and technology. And I, you know, really curious to hear kind of what your thoughts are on this. Take a listen. Technology is a series of Jenga blocks that build on top of each other. And each Jenga block is necessary for the next Jenga block to exist, but we can't predict what will happen ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But we always have to be saying, oh, here's this new tool. What does this new tool allow me to do? Over and over and over and over again. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. It's it's true, but I dislike the analogy because Jenga always collapses. <laughs> right? Like yeah, the thing about that Jenga that I think of is everything on the floor of my living room, right? Like it always ends up on the floor of my living room because we play it on the coffee table. Um, mm. And it's, but the analogy is correct, which is that there's a building block and there is a, there's this sort of weird serendipity. Like if you ever watched a river uh, that starts to flow straight, I mean, this is an experiment you used to do in, in, you know, when I was a kid, you did it in grade school. You'd get a, you know, box of sand and put water going down it straight and you think it would keep going straight because that's the path of least resistance. But no, it, it naturally starts to curve and eddy and undulate. And like, it's this weird thing that evolves. And um, I, I won't come up with a better analogy than that. But he's absolutely right about the fact that what you do today depends on what has been done. And mm-hmm. I talk about this in the book as, as, you know, sort of the event horizon of possibility, which is that so my book is focused on stuff that has never been done. What does it take to do something for the first time? And what does it feel like to be working without the ability to copy? Mm-hmm. And, and how terrible is it when you find that your whole life you've been taught to copy really well and you're really good at copying, and now you can't use that skill? Yeah. So I think about that. But one of the things that I say is, is slightly comforting is, look, a thousand people may have tried this before you and failed and they have been good and they, they're probably better than you were, right? They were probably smarter and harder working and they couldn't do it. So what makes you think that you could do it? And the answer is that Jenga analogy, which is like, you have a tool today that they didn't have yesterday. Now you don't know what that is maybe, but but you have a new tool. Every single day, this rapidly changing world gives us a new tool set and can you use it? You know, so when we started Square, I mean, we were pretty lucky because we'd just been handled this, handed this wonderful tool called, you know, the iPhone. And we'd been handed mm-hmm. all these other tools like, uh, you know, like user agreements and, and frankly, different banking laws and like all this stuff that we didn't realize had changed. And, you know, perhaps if we'd tried it a year earlier, it would have failed. Um, yeah. But we had those tools. And so you never know that all the previous failures mean that you can't do it uh, and and it's 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 sort of some it's some comfort there my 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 book is not a feel-good book it's it's a gallows humor <laughs> book right like yeah. you're not gonna you're gonna you're gonna laugh at the innovation stack hopefully because you go oh god oh yeah i know what that's like but you know it's it's not you're not gonna feel warm and wonderful afterward but you're gonna be you're gonna be prepared for the fight if you ever have to fight it yeah you know it's funny because i i remember when julian told me that. And then he explained to me how he came up with the concept for breather. And it just made me trace sort of the history of technology innovation back where it was exactly, you know, what you talk about as well, which is just just a series of technologies that intersect. So, you know, you have Mark Andreessen who creates the first commercial web browser in, you know, the early nineties, which started as mosaic. And the only reason I know mosaic is because my dad was an academic and caught me looking at porn at his lab. Um, but then, you know, ironically, the porn industry comes up with the ability to process credit cards. If you've ever seen the movie middlemen, which you have the intersection of those two technologies, and then you get e-commerce as we know it today, then you get to 2008. And this is what, you know, the thing that Julian said that really struck me, he said, you had the combination of both the mobile phone 
GPS, you know, tracking and the ability to unlock electronic locks, which sparked his idea for breather. And so that way of thinking has always kind of become my default with all of this, because I, I had this mentor who went around the country, you know, working with people in 2011 after the, the recession to help them rebuild. And whenever he met somebody, he would ask them, do you know how to use the Internet, which sounds like a stupid question. And then they would say yes, and he would say, great, show me something that you've made using the internet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great follow-up question. As in, don't just sit there and passively consume, but use this wonderful resource that can get mm-hmm. you almost any answer, even if it's yeah. the wrong answer, and show <laughs> me that you know how to use it properly. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Well, so I, I think that th- there was... A couple of other things that struck me in the book, you know, you say that uh, perfect problems need not be massive challenges that affect the world. They can be trivial annoyances. The magic ingredient that makes a problem perfect is you. If a particular problem is one that you can solve, then it's a perfect problem for you. And this mentor of mine used to say that, you know, people always try to start businesses in areas where they have zero natural advantages. You know, and he's like, if you have no media experience, starting a media company is an uphill battle. It's like, if you don't have an engineering background, you're probably not going to be very good at building electric cars or competing with Elon. Um, so one, how do people become aware of the skills that they have that allow them to solve perfect problems for them? So. I needed to find the word perfect, perfect problem because it's, it's this term that I coined in the book to refer to a subset of problems that are solvable. Okay, so think about problems. Uh, you, have, you can divide the world of problems into solvable problems and unsolvable problems. So like teleportation, we can't do that. <laughs> and, and, and it may not be solvable, okay? That just may be one that's, that's unsolvable, but let's say it's unsolvable for now. Um, so you divide the world into solvable and unsolvable problems, let's only now consider the solvable problems because unsolvable problems are impossible. Within the world of solvable problems, there are the ones where we already know a solution. In other words, somebody else knows how to solve it. You don't, but the solution is probably in some YouTube video or, you know, it's on some website or, you know, in some library. Like it's, it's a solved problem. You just haven't found the guy to copy to solve it. But If you take that set out, now you're looking at problems that are solvable, but unsolved. And that's what I call perfect problems. That is the subset that I focus the entire book on. So when when you use the word perfect problem, I don't mean like it's, oh, it's perfect for you. Like, no, no. I mean, it's this this precise definition of a solvable problem that does not Mm -hmm. yet have a solution. Okay. So then now I'd like to answer your question, which is a fantastic question, which is like, Okay, how do I know I can do it? And how do I know that I've got the skill set for this problem? And 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 so I will I will disagree a little bit with the with you know the the the, the statement you made before, which is like if you don't have an engineering background, sh- or you know should you be doing engineering work? And and the answer is absolutely not. If the engineering work is what is needed to solve the problem, like if you're right. doing solved problems without the skill set necessary to solve them, then you're like an idiot getting in an airplane and flying. Like you can get in an airplane and take off. Yeah. Right. You can do that. It's possible. It's it's not even hard, you know? Um, But you're stupid if you go into an airplane cockpit and take off without being properly trained because it's so easy to get properly trained these days. Now the Wright brothers didn't have that option. So they had to go first. 
So the fact that the Wright brothers weren't uh, pilots was reasonable because there were no pilots on the planet. So I, I, I see people make this mistake all the time, and it's one of the things I sort of hammer on in the book, which is, look, if you end up at some point in your life on the edge of what humanity knows how to do, so you're about to dip your toe in the water of perfect, perfect problems. These are things where there's no YouTube video. There's no known formula. You're going to have to invent stuff. And believe me, invention is messy. It's pretty horrible. Uh, innovation is, is, is unpleasant at best. But if you end up there, the question you'll ask yourself is, should I continue? Should I try this thing? Once you discover that there's no YouTube video guiding you along, what do you do? And almost all of us will stop. We'll stop because our whole lives we've been said, we've been trained to get qualified. Like, don't do that stupid thing. You know, go go get a class, you know, go get a certificate. Like, go go find an expert, go hire a professor or, or a professional. That hesitation is completely correct if there's a solved problem. But if it's an unsolved problem, there's no expert. So the first time anything is done of significance on the planet, it is done by a novice. And it doesn't matter if you're an expert or a PhD or really good at something because what you're really good at is something that we already we already know how to do. Yeah. So the skills that you bring across that line into the world of unsolved problems are are very they're very weird skills. There's, you know, tenacity, audacity, the the they're they're the ability to just kind of keep going. It's it's almost like just stubbornness. Like pure stubbornness beats a PhD if you're in the world of unsolved problems. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we started this show in 2009, people were saying podcasts were dead. Um, and I, to this day, I can't tell you why we did it or why we continued doing it for 10 years. And now we're basically the beneficiaries of a 10-year head start on something that became a massive cultural trend. Oh, my God. Yeah. You were so early. Like, it, it wasn't dead. It was just that the first little blips had come and they were like, oh, well, look at that. It's cute. It's like, cute. This is going to eat your lunch, dude. <laughs> well, so the, the funny thing about this is, you know, we're talking about solvable problems, ones that nobody have ever has ever solved before. But there's something you say in the book. And I remember thinking, I was like, okay, what's the, the sort of, why is there this contradiction where you say, you know, the formula for any successful business requires well, a formula, no bullets, no book, no checklist, no check. I realized how disappointing it is to have a book without any checklist who wouldn't like to have a map of unexplored territory. This formula has worked well for millennia and it will give you the ability to succeed in any known field of endeavor. Even better, you've been practicing the fundamental skill it requires since before you were born and are almost as certainly a master ready, copy what everyone else does. <laughs> Which I was like, wait a minute, did Jim just contradict everything he said in the chapters before? But now that I'm talking to you, I, I, I think I kind of understand. So what you're yeah. talking about there, it sounds like, is problems that other people have solved already. Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, I, 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 I'm, thank you for catching that because it's, it's one of the parts of the book where it makes a hard left turn and a lot of people end up, you know, plastered against the right windshield, you know, uh, because what I tell people is, look, I have nothing against copying. I have nothing against unoriginal behavior. As a matter of fact, I love unoriginal behavior. I love being the guy that can be the student 
I love being a student. I, I'm going to, as a matter of fact, I, the reason I got to cut this interview short is I'm taking my kid, you know, off to get a, get a lesson in something, right? You know, I love the fact that he's a student. I'm going to watch, you know, uh, if you can be taught, get taught. If you can become an expert, become an expert. And you can live your entire life very successfully and very safely in this world where you're not going first. You don't have to be the first person to summit Everest. And you can still climb Mount Everest, Everest, right? You'll go up there. Mm -hmm. There's a whole industry that will get you to the top of Everest, you know? Um, If you want to go first, if you find yourself in that position, that's what I talk about in the book. But I don't recommend it. What I tell you is, look, yeah, I'm not trying to sell innovation. I'm not one of these guys that says, oh, be more innovative. No, I stop. I like, God, you know, I, I don't know if you've used, used a Google flight search a matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, Google changed the interface. They took something that was awesome and they made it crappy. You know, they innovated on something that was really good. And then they made it almost unusable. And I was like, oh, no, Really? You yeah, know? having booked a lot of flights in the last couple of months, I like the whole experience of every flight booking site pisses me off. Oh God! Um, so do you know the secret? Old Matrix is still up. They they okay. they kept Good there's know. a backdoor to it. It's oldmatrix.it. Right. I don't know what the web address is, and I probably shouldn't give it out on a podcast because it'll change. But like, it's still <laughs> there. You can find it, dude. Like, e- email me. I'll I'll send you the link. But here's the point: I'm not preaching innovation. I am telling people that you don't have to spend your entire life copying. I'm not saying that that's not a great life, okay? I'm saying copy whenever you can. Don't, because here's the thing. If you don't respect copying, you won't understand innovation. If you're somebody who thinks, I got to do something new. I can't do do it the way everybody else is doing it. Well, are they succeeding? Because if they're doing it another way and they're all successful, maybe, dude, you want to do it their way. You know, like I don't want somebody original making dinner tonight for me out of some plant that humans have never consumed before. You know, (laughs) hey, Jim, we thought we'd fry this up and serve it to your family. Uh, You know, forget it. No, give me the bean sprouts. So, uh, you know, one of the things that you had you mentioned when we were talking about this idea of copying was this idea of a formula. And, you know, uh, I basically wrote this entire book called Unmistakable, which I jokingly have said in interview after interview that it you know could have easily been called Everybody is Full of Shit because that's all that's what I said in a more diplomatic way. And now I'm actually working on a book idea titled Everybody is Full of Shit, including me. Um, oh, beautiful. Because yes. I, you know, after a thousand interviews, the, the joke I've always said is if I could actually put all of this advice into action, I'd be a billionaire with six pack abs and a harem of supermodels. But I am not, you know, and so I want to talk about this idea of copying and look at it uh, through the lens of the role that context plays, because so often, you know, and, and this is something I've just been hammering endlessly on the show, because I feel like people listen to people like you and they have this sort of tendency to see somebody like you as a, a person of, who is in a position of authority and say, oh, well, Jim co-founded Square with Jack Dorsey, so he must be right. So I'm going to follow his advice to the letter, not taking into account that, wait a minute, your life and Jim's life are wildly different. Yeah, and I say explicitly that I was incredibly lucky. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't work hard. That doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, a smart guy who knows a lot of math and 
you know, stubborn and all that. I, you know, you put a bunch of qualities there, but the fact is luck p- plays a huge part. And, and if you get lucky, there's this horrible selection bias where uh, the publishers of the world ask you to write books, mm-hmm. you know, and then you come up with this tried advice. And I wanted none of that. As a matter of fact, I, I fought the idea of writing a book so hard. The only yeah. reason I wrote it was because it, it basically when I was interviewing Herb Kelleher, mm-hmm. um, he told me I had to share the ideas. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was I, I went to Herb to sort of validate all this research that I was doing sort of for my own, you know, my own amusement and nothing that was supposed to be public. And then I went to Herb and he's like, how are you going to share this? And my initial answer was, I'm going to make a comic book. Like, I'm going to make a graphic novel. And the first five drafts of Innovation Stack were all graphic novels. Wow. So, um, (laughs) and as a matter of fact, if you go to, like, I I still actually printed up Chapter 9 as a graphic novel. And I'll I'll, I'll send you a copy because it's, you know, we printed that up as a comic book. Because, you know, the story of Giannini is so great that it deserves, you know, pen and ink. But, like, I fought this idea of writing a book until the last minute when I was doing Herb's chapter. And I called him to tell him, hey, man, you're like, this is going to be great. And he said, don't portray me or this subject as a comic. He's like, it's way too serious and you need to take it seriously. And he's like, I can't stop you from doing it, but I can ask you to leave me out. Mm-hmm. And and I took that really seriously, which is why the book has no drawings in it. But yeah. look, you got you to take yourself seriously enough, but not too seriously. And I say many times that if you're lucky and you're working hard, it feels like the working hard was what got you success. Mm-hmm. But there was somebody else probably working just as hard who didn't get lucky and he's not writing a book. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I mean, for me, it was damn lucky that I just happened to start a podcast in 2009. You know, And this is why I'm so reluctant when people have asked me to teach a course on podcasting. It's like, I'm always like, what am I going to tell you? Move home, live with your parents until you're 39 and get lucky, find an amazing mentor on Twitter and, you know, hope that some editor on Medium finds your article that you wrote. And it's not that I didn't work hard, but like there are just so many sort of serendipitous events in that that I can't replicate for somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, look, part of that is getting out there and trying. And I always advocate trying. But, yeah, luck has to happen. And the, here's here's the thing that I that I hope someone will get when they read the book is that there's this invisible line between what we know how to do and what we don't know how to do. And you better start getting good at recognizing that line because the rules change on one side or the other. Mm hmm. And once you start recognizing the line, a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm never going to cross it. Like, I'm never going to try something that hasn't already been validated by a bunch of others. Okay, cool. That's that's fine. But I don't want the whole world to stay on one side of the line because the future is brought to us by the people who cross the line. And and it is messy and ugly and unpleasant. And you do need to be lucky. Uh, and you'll probably fail. Okay, I'm sorry. Like, if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, the odds of success are pretty slim. But I still want people to intentionally cross because I mm-hmm. accidentally sort of stumbled on on either side of the line, not knowing what the hell I was doing for years, and then not knowing how to behave differently on one side or the other. And the results were a disaster. I mean, it, it helped me develop a sense of humor, but that was about it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, don't don't undercount luck. Yeah. 
Well, one thing that you say when we talk about this idea of copying is that there's really only one problem with copying. Nothing ever changes. We advance yes. neither as a species nor as a society unless something changes. Of course, most changes will fail, which you just alluded to. And then you go on to say that, you know, copying almost always feels comfortable, but it will never produce the thrill of invention. Copying is almost always the right answer, but it will never uh, produce transformative change. I, which, you know, it's funny because you're right. I, the reason I ended up writing my book was because I, I remember somebody once said to me, there's great creative potential in the things that make you angry. And that stayed with me. And I thought, you know, what pisses me off is when I see people take some online course and then literally, you know, tactic by tactic or by word, try to copy to the T exactly what the person who taught the course does. I had a friend once who sent me a list of something like 10 of her clients and I put all their websites up next to each other because she wanted to pitch them as podcast guests. And I replied back and I said, one, I don't have any idea what the fuck any of these people do. And it sounds like they all do the exact same thing. Oh my God. Yeah. Did, did you, did you get the story in the book about my friend who taught a class on entrepreneurship? And yeah, well, I want to do, I want to talk about that in the context of okay, education. Absolutely. Th- th- that is, oh my God. Yeah. I, it, it, it perfectly illustrates what you just said. Yeah. So, so I, I want to come back to the types of motivation uh, because I think that'll make more sense later. But there's something that you say, which really struck me as well. You said, I've undertaken a dozen projects that people have called crazy. I've made a living as an artist and started a glassblowing studio. I founded companies in the fields of software, book printing, roofing, and payments. I launched a nonprofit to solve the national shortage of programmers. I'm currently trying to give people control of their online identities. I have no idea what, if anything, these organizations have in common except that the core is a problem that I care about. And it kind of got me thinking about sort of batshit crazy ideas because I I told you I need 45 minutes. I'm working on this article titled How to Upload Your Brain to the Internet because now with network-based note-taking tools, the sort of idea that Gordon Bell had uh, when he had that total recall project, for those of you who don't, don't know what I'm referring to, and I'm guessing, Jim, you probably know what I'm referring to. Um, a little bit, Gordon yeah. Bell tried to basically upload his brain to the Internet for the most part, and he wanted complete and total recall. Now, when he undertook this project, it was one of those things that was damn near impossible because the sheer amount of effort that went into actually organizing the information so that it was actually retrievable was a project in and of itself. Yeah, and, and then you start recording the information about recording the information, and then you're in a yeah. metal loop that just, well, the, the, and, you know, it falls out of the air. Well, and so that's where network thinking and organizing information and in networks changes all of that. I only know this because I'm living and breathing this on a daily basis right now because I'm you know a diehard fan of the note-taking app MEM. And you start to see that, wait a minute, this is a very different way of organizing information, but it sounds completely insane until you've actually used it. And it's funny because, you know, you were talking about Jack Dorsey and I remember the very first time I saw Twitter, I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Why would anybody use this? And you have a term that I think is is probably a better uh, description, but I call it the utility paradox where you don't really understand why something is useful until you've used it for long enough. And so there are two sort of questions that come from that is, you know, on the, the side of the person who's creating this thing, how do they persist long enough 
to get past, you know, this perceived utility paradox, because I've heard investors say that when they heard the ideas for Airbnb and Uber, they thought they thought it was the plot of a murder movie in the making. And I and I, then I remember made, making a note as I was writing this article saying what initially sounds dumb becomes our new default. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, so I mean, Airbnb and uh you Uber both require you to be comfortable with a stranger in your car or in your house. Yeah. And at the time that was not normal. So it was this very weird moment where people had to do a state change and accept strangers. And now it's like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm getting in an Uber. You're not a stranger. You're an Uber driver, right? Mm -hmm. I have this new category for non strangers. Um, but that didn't exist. And when they were starting, they were 
running up against that wall every day. No. Um, and people forget that. But but this is the thing when you're you're called crazy because there is a change that hasn't happened in the world. And, uh, you know, we had the same thing at Square. People initially told us that no one is going to hand their credit card to some sketchy looking dude with an iPhone and a funny little white square plugged into it. Like that just mm-hmm. won't happen. And and, you know, we tested it out on a few people and people were reluctant. You know, they were sort of hesitant. But then we started to refine the idea and make it cool. And then we made it interesting. And then we made the hardware so small that it was sort of fascinating and became this trick. And instead of being creeped out by it, you were sort of fascinated by it. And I think that may have helped us. Well, you know, funny enough, one of the things you say early on is that when you guys pitched square you actually told your investors 140 reasons that it would it would fail and the <laughs> yeah. only reason that that i i know this because sunil gupta talks about this in his book backable where it actually shows your ability to be you know thinking about the future in a way that most people don't but i'm just oh, yeah. curious can you talk about that a bit more oh yeah it's it's the greatest trick in the world i mean i i sort of go through our pitch in detail and outline two or three things that i think were you know sort of very important and I never see in pitches anymore. Um, but the reasons you fail is it's a total state changer in the room. Because if you think about, okay, think about life as a venture capitalist for a minute. Okay. So you're wearing this checkered, you know, collared shirt and you're sitting there in your vest. And what's your job? Your job is to find out where the entrepreneur is lying to you, where this person who's pitching you is not telling you the truth because if everything is to be believed, you'd invest in every company you see. So it's an attack and defend model. The entrepreneurs are attacking, the VCs are defending, and that's what sort of permeates the room. And by putting the 140 reasons slide in our pitch, we changed that entire dynamic because it was very early on. Basically, we, you know, we introduced ourselves, we showed them the product, and they were like, and here's why it's not going to work. Okay. <laughs> and um and then we had you know, I mean we had some humorous bullet points, but most of them were deadly serious. And you know, Amazon attacking us was a reason that Square might fail. And surprise, surprise, it did happen. And actually in one of our pitches, uh one of the VCs uh, who we didn't go with, but uh he he his reason for us to take their money was that he was on the board of Amazon and that he could stop Amazon from attacking us if we took his money. In other words, take take our money and I'll keep Amazon from attacking you. I can protect you from one of those reasons you'll fail. And that changes the tone of the entire room. So now the VCs are trying to see the ones, trying to see if you're being honest with the reasons you could fail, they you know, honesty begets honesty. And and they will then respond honestly and say, you know, actually, we don't see that as a problem or, yeah, that's a real one. I don't know how we're going to solve that. Or, hey, I actually do know how we can solve that one and we could help you. And that's what happened in the room. So after that slide, it was no longer a VC pitch. It was this weird sort of problem-solving communal exercise. And we got, I mean, I think we pitched 21 times and we got 19 term sheets. Wow. So it was unbelievably effective. And I think everyone should do it. Wow. Well, let's actually get into this entire concept of an innovation stack 
you say that the problem with solving one problem is that it usually creates a new problem that requires a new solution with its own problems. The problem solution problem chain continues until eventually one of two things happens. You either fail to solve a problem and die, or you succeed in solving all the problems with the collection of both interlocking and independent innovation. This successful collection is what I call an innovation stack. And you say that an innovation stack is not a plan. It's a series of reactions to existential threats. So let's talk about this idea of an innovation stack on both an organizational level and an individual level, because I'm guessing that we probably have innovation stacks in our own lives on a day-to-day basis, right? They're just kind of unconscious to us. Yeah. I mean, anything that works uh, that requires a series of different things to work collectively is an innovation stack. So if you take um, take any problem that has been solved, it's normally not just one thing. It's normally you got to do two or three or 20 things in order for it to work. And if you think about, I mean, you know, take an internal combustion engine, like what has to work for an internal combustion engine to work? Like 75 different things. You know, the cam lifters, the springs, the the way the pistons seal, um, you know, the carburetor or the fuel injectors, uh, the exhaust system, you know, the fuel metering, like I, I like all this stuff, you know, and then you turn it 45 degrees and it stops working, you know. So um, there are all sorts of assumptions that uh, that went into that product uh, that eventually had to be proven right or wrong. And eventually they figured out how to make the, the engine work and then they refined it and refined it and refined it. But that's sort of the nature of, of stuff that works. It's not mm. one thing. It's this mess. And if you're, yeah. if you're like, if you like to lump things into this category of engine, well, I just need an engine. Okay, great. You can say the word engine because it's been around for 200 years, but you can't say engine the first time. You don't know what the hell's going to happen. All, all you know is uh, gas explodes, you know, or actually kerosene explodes, you know? So you're, you're in a situation where you're uh, unable to figure out the problem. But I will tell you that the solution is this mess that I call an innovation stack. And recognizing that that's the mess uh, that is supposed to happen is one thing to help you not quit. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're bumping along and it's not working, but you're making progress, you're getting, well, well, we fixed that problem. Now what's the new problem? Okay. Oh, well, we fixed that problem. Oh, crap. Well, that just caused this other three problems. I don't know how to fix those, but I can fix two of them. And the third one, I'll wait until maybe I can find somebody else to help me fix that. And, uh, you know, and you just go back and forth. Eventually you'll get it uh, or not. I mean, there's no promises. I'm not going to sit there and say, you keep trying and you'll succeed. No, no, sorry. Like the only way I can prove that you're going to succeed is by giving you a problem that I already know the solution to, i.e. I'll give you something that I know how to do. Yeah. But that's not innovation. That's just copying again. So the mm-hmm. process of innovation is a mess, and it results in this thing that there was no word for it. See, this is this is the you know weird thing. I, when I wrote this book, and English is a pretty rich language because we you know we steal words from everybody else, and we're you know you know hundreds of thousands of words. There was no word for what I wanted to do. There was no word for a business person that didn't copy. There was no, I found all these sort of gaps in the language. And I was like, wow, that's because nobody discusses this part of creation. Yeah. 
Well, let's go through a, a specific examples, and then I'm going to do the most selfish example of all, which is I want to talk about how I could build an innovation stack for unmistakable creative, like what that would even look like for my own business. Because, I mean, you know, I think that there's this sort of tendency, and I know you addressed this, to think that, oh, this is only relevant to people who are building the next Tesla. No, 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 no. It's relevant to anybody who's solving an unsolved problem. Or, or a problem that you don't know the solution. So maybe there's a solution, you just don't know it, right? Um, but if you are making a solution to a any sort of complex problem, um, it, you know, personal or business, you will find that this is the process. You try something, it doesn't work. You try something else, oh, that works, but it causes other problems. Now you got to deal with those, you know, and, and, and on you go. And that process will feel very foreign to you at first. Mm-hmm. Once you start to recognize, and this is what I hope people who read the book will do, is when they find themselves in that world where they're bumping along, but making progress, they won't quit because they'll go, oh, yeah, McKelvey warned me about this. Oh, wait, there's a chapter on how I'm supposed to feel uncomfortable right now. It's not because I want you to feel uncomfortable. It's just, you're, look, you're a human. Your body is wired to replicate stuff that works and replicate cells that work. And it's, you're just a copy machine and, and that's how you are most comfortable. So when you get out of that comfort zone, at least if you have this context of what innovation looks like, you might not quit as soon as you would otherwise. Yeah. Well, let's go through a couple of the examples that you go through in the book. I think the the one that I, you know, was so interesting to me was Giannini. I was like, really? Like that's where that came from? Because I I think that's the one that most people will be like, whoa, wait a minute. This is something that most of us have used at one point or another in our lives. Yeah, a bank. (laughs) I mean, we've all used a bank. Well, actually, not all of us. There's a lot of unbanked, but my guess is they're probably not listening to this podcast. Hopefully they are. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So, so walk me through that innovation stack, like how it emerged and, and how it came to be and, and what that innovation stack looked like. Okay. So AP Giannini was the founder of what you think of as banking. So if you've been to a bank in the last hundred years, you have been to his invention. And he founded a little bank called the Bank of Italy, which then became the biggest bank in the world. And it eventually became Transamerica and Bank of America and this, this sort of multinational monster. But what you think of as banking was invented by this guy who was not a banker. He didn't even finish high school. Like he quit school at age, you know, age 13 or 14 and became a produce vendor. So he was trading lettuce and buying walnuts and, you know, uh, made so much money in that business that at the age of 30, he retired. So he was done by age 30, right? Talk about success. Uh, joined the board of a bank because he was a little bored and discovered that the bank was not lending to farmers and immigrants and normal people, like just normal people couldn't use banks. Banks were only for the rich and privileged. And this was banking before Giannini got his hands on it. And what this guy did was he said, this is stupid. I want to build a bank for everybody. I want to build a bank that I could have used, you know, when I was starting out in my business. So he goes out, doesn't know a thing about banking and says, I'm going to start a bank. So he calls up one of his friends um, and who knows something about banking. He says, uh, how do I start a bank? And the guy goes, well, you do this and this and this. And then Giannini, in the process of building his bank, reinvents the entire uh, industry of banking. Uh, the idea of a branch 
That's his innovation. The idea of, uh, you know, home loans, car loans, like installment loans, his idea, the idea that you could go in and actually talk to a teller. That's an innovation that he brought to us. Dozens and dozens of ideas and first in the world of banking was APG and 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 what he did was so successful that a hundred years later, every other bank has copied it. So it's now a, it's now what you think of as just like normal banking. But at the time, it was revolutionary. And and remember, Giannini, he was a poor uh, kid who lost his father very tragically. Uh, and he was living in California. And all the banks were in New York. So this was, you know, this was the, the, the years, the era when you had to cross the continent by rail. They, like they just laid the first railroad tracks across the United States. So Giannini was way separated from the traditions of normal banking. And I thought that was such a great example too, because my point is that, look, a lot of times knowledge is super helpful if you're doing something that's already been done. But but if you had asked a banker to build the Bank of Italy or the Bank of America or whatever you know Giannini built, they'd never been able to do it. They would have said, oh, it's impossible. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, like you can't loan money to normal people. They'll never pay you back. You can't loan money. You know, you can't have a branch system. You can't do that. You can't. And and they would come up with all these reasons, which, you know, they think are legitimate reasons because of their, you know, buy into the existing system. But there's a different system out there. And that's what Giannini invented. Wow. Well, let's talk um, about pricing, because I think that this kind of struck me because I thought to myself, well, yeah, if you're Twitter or you have, you know, Walmart, you can price things low. Whereas if you're me, you know, just based on the economies of scale, if I price things low, I'm going to have a very unprofitable business. So I, I'm curious because you say that, um, you know, building an innovation stack will give your firm the ability to set prices differently from other companies. If you want to change your price, that sh- change should originate from the innovation stack. Low price is a result and low price forges a stronger relationships by with customers by building trust in the brand. And that seems so paradoxical to me because like on the one hand, I've read the exact opposite where people say that, you know, it changes the perception of the value of something if it's cheap. Oh, yeah. Um, And I mean, you're talking to a guy who sells glass, which is art, which I mean, I I completely admit that art is a gift and good and you want to charge a lot, even if it's garbage. Um, And I do. Um, (laughs) You know, Um, but uh, the, the context for that understanding is is tied to another thing that I talk about in the book, which is the pyramids and and how these companies that I studied all had this sort of weird trait, which was that they expanded access to a market. So the first thing to do to understand my pricing sort of uh, weirdness, which again it's it's the opposite of what they teach in business school, but I stand by it. Uh, but to to understand that, you first have to understand that most markets are these sort of pyramid-shaped entities where at the very, very top you have expensive exclusive, right? So Bentleys and Aston Martins and fancy cars at the top. Um, Down at the middle, you have, um, you know, high-end but mass-produced. That's Mercedes and Lexus. Uh, Going down further, you have common products. That's, uh, you know, Chevy and uh, Ford. Uh, Down at the very bottom, you have, you know, the off brands, I, I don't know, Kia has actually gotten pretty good, but, you know, Kia and BYD, if you're Chinese, you know, like those are those are sort of off brand cars. And, and then the market stops. OK, and it stops at the point where you can no longer buy a new car. 
they can no longer the market can no longer create a car and sell it profitably below that bottom part of the pyramid. And all the companies that I studied were in a market that had this pyramid-shaped uh, structure, and they built below the pyramid. They shoved an entire new wet, you know, an, an entire new level of the pyramid underneath. And by that, I mean they expanded access. So what did Giannini do with Bank of America? Giannini brought banking to normal people, to farmers and immigrants and just people like you and me. And so what do you do if you're able to do that with your price? Okay, so let's you you build this innovation stack. You figure out how to give, how to give banking or credit card processing or furniture uh, or banking to some new group. Well, by definition, you probably have a very efficient system, which means you can charge less. Uh, the question is, should you? Or should you just price it so that you're barely a little bit less than the cheapest guy in the market? And the answer is, paradoxically, you should charge less because it, it grows the market tremendously. But more importantly, for long-term survival, it prevents your competitors from getting in and copying you. Because if you think about the math of attacking a company who's super efficient and low cost, is you never get a subsidy from uh, your for, for your inefficiencies. You better start with an entire innovation stack ready to go, which is damn near impossible uh, when you've got a competitor who's doing it correctly. So you, you, I mean, people have tried to rip off IKEA for decades. They look at IKEA, they're like, "Wow, these guys are making a ton of money," and it's such an easy idea to understand and we can walk through and let's let's build a warehouse and make you know cheap uh, furniture to put together with Allen key. No, like they don't understand a tenth of what IKEA does. And when they do, they start to run up against I- IKEA's innovation stack, which is you know 75, 80, 100 uh, different components. And they can't do it. Uh, but then IKEA keeps their prices low. So they don't even survive long enough to get a second chance. And you look at a situation, and I do this in the book as a, as a perfect example of this pricing theory at work. You know, for the 20 years that Herb Kelleher ran Southwest Airlines, there were dozens of startup airlines that got into his face, that, 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 that attacked Southwest and said, oh, well, we'll just copy what Southwest is doing and we'll be another successful airline. Okay. The only one that survived was JetBlue. And the only reason they survived was because they had this weird, you know, sort of lock on the Northeast market. They had New York and they had... They had some stuff. But aside from that, they totally copied Southwest and they made it. But every other carrier, and I list them, there were probably like eight or nine entire air carriers dead trying to copy Southwest. Okay. So then what does Southwest do? Herb retires and the new guy takes over. And the new guy looks at it and says, hey, I can make a lot more money by jacking up our prices. I mean, we're still a great airline. But we could, you know, we're leaving 50% of our uh, ticket price on the table. Let's jack up the prices. So what does he do? He jacks up the prices. And what does the stock market do? The stock market goes, oh, wow, this guy's great. Look at all this profit that Southwest is making. Okay. And when I was sitting there talking to Herb, he was wringing his hands. He was like, Spirit Airlines, Frontier Airlines. He's like, those wouldn't exist if I was still in charge. Like he was pissed because they gave away pricing as an advantage. They did what the MBAs teach you to do, which is, oh, go maximize some profit here. You know, charge what you can charge. But if you do that with an innovation stack, you're giving away the long run. Wow. 
Wow, the, this is crazy. Well, let's talk about business school because I, you know, I think that I, I remember I wrote this uh, article on Medium titled "Why Business School Teaches You Absolutely Nothing About Running a Business." Uh, as you know, somebody who ran a business, and I remember Naval Ravikant actually had a really good way of putting this. He said that you know, in sort of the case study world, he's like there are these idiosyncrasies that don't express themselves in reality. And the most ridiculous example I came up with, you know, we do this weekly segment, uh, my, my friend and I co-host called the Creativity Hour, and we were talking about this. And I said, look, you know, a lemonade stand could become a distribution arm for a cocaine cartel. And he was like, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, all right, look, you go to business school or, you know, you think, okay, cool. I'm going to build this lemonade stand empire. I have a lemonade stand on every corner in America. And then, you know, one of, uh, a Colombian cartel's henchman comes up to the lemonade stand and says, you know what? Your lemonade stands are a perfect place for us to distribute our cocaine. And, you know, any normal person would be like, yeah, that's illegal. I would never do that. And then they say, well, here's the thing. We're going to blow your brains out and kill everybody in your family if you don't do this. There's literally no way you could have anticipated that. And now your lemonade stand empire is a distribution arm for a cocaine cartel. Got it. Okay. Is, I mean, um, that is the most extreme and ridiculous example of, you know, what we're talking about here. But um, that's the thing I think that struck me so much about business school is that you learn all these different models, but the variables inside of everything that you do in business school are static. Like you don't have difficult people to work with. You know, or, yeah. I mean, you do, but it, like there's so many things that are not there in the way that you learn to approach building a business in business school that you cannot learn without building a business. Yeah. I mean, there's just some trial by fire. I mean, I, and I don't denigrate business schools, uh, but I do lump their graduates into the, you better be copying a model that works uh, pile. So in other words, w- once I have a company that's working and we know what we're doing, I generally leave it and we hire a bunch of people who are good at running things. And a lot of those people have MBAs. A lot of those people work, went to business school, studied business, know how to do operations, you know, know how to do pricing theory. They, they know all this stuff. Um, I don't think that skill set is terribly useful in the innovation phase. Like when you're building something new, yeah. the business school training is not particularly relevant. And my mm-hmm. friend Howard and I, he was, you know, he was teaching an, uh, an entrepreneurship class. And, um, you know, we thought, about how we would do it because he was like, how do I teach entrepreneurship? He's like, how do I teach this stuff? <laughs> and I was like, oh, here's the first assignment. You know, uh, you lock the door, you put a box within, you know, you, you put a box in the center of the classroom that is, you know, your homework is due in 60 minutes and the door's locked and you don't even show up. Like you have to get your name in this box or you fail the first assignment. Now, now you're now you're an entrepreneur. Like, how the hell are you going to get in? Are you going to break the glass? Well, that's pretty stupid. You know, are you going to pick the lock? Well, I hope you have that skill set. Are you going to try to find a janitor or somebody who can let you in? You know, or like maybe there's an air duct. I don't know. Or maybe you'll make like a paper airplane, uh, like 500 paper airplanes and just like launch them until one of them lands in the box. Like, I don't know how you're going to solve that problem. But like, that's the sort of stuff we concocted for this. But I mean, uh, Howard was sure he was going to get fired if he started teaching that way. And so he never, <laughs> he, he never totally had the balls to implement it. But like that was, if you're, if you're building something new, the, the skill set that we teach in business school, it, they, look, they can't teach this stuff. It's, it's the same reason I don't have checklists in my book. Like I can't give a checklist 
to an unknown problem. We don't know what the solution is. How many items are on this checklist? We don't know. So, you know, this is something I was just thinking about throughout our conversation is, you know, like I'm thinking about problems that podcasters have, right? You know, and there are a series of small ones. You know, one thing I think that, you know, people have issues with, and I, I think this is an issue for podcast advertisers as well, right? Is that most of the time when people hear an ad on a podcast, they're not in front of their computer. And so that, you know, makes it very difficult to get them from the ad to the call to action unless you have an audience of like, you know, Joe Rogan size um, or Tim Ferriss size. But that's, you know, a small subset. That's sort of the, you know, one percent of or the point one percent of the podcast ecosystem. And so what I guess the question is, then, is when you look at building innovation stacks, do you start to look at a series of small unsolved problems that all kind of combine together? I never intentionally try to build an innovation stack. It's not this thing that I'm going for. It's this thing that I recognize as it's happening. I'm like, oh, oh, wow. okay, there it is. There it is again. You know, but it's not the goal. Because if you focus on that, then you start focusing on innovation, which is not the point. The point is to solve a problem. So you find the problem that is there. Okay, so you've identified a problem, which is that uh, advertisers don't get the attention that they need uh, in the traditional podcasting uh, format. And then the question is, well, what's the solution to that problem? And um, I don't know it right now, but I mean... We can we can sit here and hypothesize, but what you what you would do is you would you would come up with some hypothesis. Let's 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 say, look, I I believe that the best way to podcast is to only podcast in conjunction with display advertising, right? You know, like you need call to actions on billboards, and then the response rate doubles. Or I only believe that you know podcasts should be you know weaving their stuff into. Uh, you know, into the programming, like, you know, like Chesterfield cigarettes used to do, you know, in the 1950s, you know, there would be all the actors would be smoking Chesterfields and, you know, they'd be sponsored by Chesterfield and, you know, the horse would be smoking and everybody's smoking and you know, it's Chesterfield, Chesterfield, you know, like, I don't know how you do it, but yeah. neither do you. So you start exactly doing something and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a second, we can't do that because it's illegal or it's, uh, it, it destroys the podcast or, you know, it's driving listeners away. So then you have to pivot and you go, well, it, it's working, but it's causing this side effect. So you, you have to deal with a side effect. And, uh, and, and, you know, like maybe you discover that the secret to uh, podcasting is some weird, you know, uh, Muzak base, you know, like, like you have to, you have to put a theme behind it and you only, you know, mention the uh, products at these, you know, sort of subliminal crescendos in the, in the music track. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what the hell's going on, but but you start with a problem, right? Yeah. Don't start, don't focus on innovation. Please, please, please. Like, uh, like that's not the point. The, the point of the book is to recognize when innovation is happening and not recoil from it because it's such a foreign thing to you. So don't, d- don't, don't say, well, we have to invent something new. No, you don't. Maybe somebody's already figured this out. Uh, and maybe it's from an, another industry, like maybe the advertising industry or the auto industry or, you know, uh, the the scuba diving industry figured this problem out. Like you have to figure out if somebody's figured it out and either apply those lessons or make up new rules. Yeah. Well, I, I want to wrap with one sort of final uh, area 
you know, one of the things that you say in the book is that money and fame are weak motivators. We tend to overvalue both commodities because they're easy, easy to measure. The view looks better from the outside than it does from within. The scales go to infinity, but with diminishing returns and sometimes negative returns. And, you know, I, I think that like, Probably half my listeners are thinking, yeah, well, that's easy for Jim to say he co-founded Square with Jack Dorsey. Like, does Jim have any problems related to money? Like, is he going to worry about money ever again in the rest of his life? But, you know, I, I also have seen that play out in my own life to some degree where when I looked at any creative project that was done purely because I thought that money was a reason to do it, that was a disaster or if it did make money, I hated the entire process. Yeah. Uh, so I had this weird epiphany. Um, sorry. That's, that's my meatloaf, but I'll, I'll get it later. Yeah, and yeah, just, just, just for the record. Yes. I'm making dinner tonight and it's meatloaf <laughs> there. Life is a billionaire, right? I got ground beef under my fingernails. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, what were we talking about? Um, Oh yeah, the day I realized I was rich. I, so I was, I was, this was years before Square. Years before Square, I was driving into my glass studio and this, uh, uh, this radio contest was giving away 10,000 bucks. And the radio announcer said, think how $10,000 would change your life. And I was like, wow, actually it wouldn't. I mean, I'd love to have 10,000 bucks. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I had a crappy old car and I was going into my glass studio. But, you know, I was already successful enough that I could buy everything that I wanted. And so I started thinking about how much money I would need to change my life. And the number I came up with was, was astounding. Like it was like tens of millions of dollars. And I didn't have a million dollars to my name at that point. But I was like, what are the odds of me making 60 million bucks? I figured, well, if I made 60 million bucks, you know, I might be able to get a little bit of a passive income and then I could like afford a better airplane. Because I was flying at the time. Like I had an old airplane, but my airplane's a piece of crap. I still have the same airplane. My airplane cost $23,000. It was twenty three grand. It's a Mooney M- M20, okay? Yeah. Manual landing gear, the whole nine yards. But it's a great little plane. It gets me where I need to go. I could fly it, you know? That's what I flew. It's a cheap plane, cheaper than your car. Yeah. But I was rich, and I, I had this moment where I was like, oh, crap, I'm rich. And it wasn't that I had a lot of money. It was that money wasn't going to change anything. And now I have a phantasmagorical amount of money and it has changed very little. Um, I, I guess I have a fancier plane now. Okay. So you can hate me for that. Um, I still, I mean, we live in a two bedroom apartment. Uh, why? It's not because we can't afford a bigger plane. Why would you do it? Yes. It's like, Oh, more crap to take care. I don't think I have the ego to deal with my bank account. I, I certainly don't. Uh, aspire to do anything with it except give it away. So what my wife and I are doing now is we're trying to figure out how to do, you know, effective altruism and and give it away well. But, um, you know, back to motivation, I, I talk about money and fame as weak motivators, but I think they're very easily packaged motivators because yeah. fame looks really cool, right? You know, the champagne on the yacht, the caviar, all the, the bling, like the, the the brands, all that stuff. Hey, man, if you're into that, if that really makes you happy, get it. Do it. That's cool. Like, I wish I was that way because then I'd be happier. But I'm not. Like, you put a label on my shirt, it ain't going to make me any happier. So I don't have a label on my shirt. Um, but 
If you're motivated by money and fame, what you'll find is that that goes away very quickly. You don't tend to stick with it as much as you mentioned it earlier in the podcast. I think it was a great example. You're motivated by being angry. You find something that you think is wrong. Hey, man, I'm the same way. I see something that pisses me off. I see somebody taking advantage of a poor person or somebody doing something that's racist or weird or just messed up. Like that makes me angry. And that anger is a source of energy, way more motivating. So I've been working harder since Square uh, than before because like now I feel like, okay, my family's taken care of. I'm never going to, you know, have to, you know, go out and, you know, beg for food. So I can take some really big shots. What's pissing me off today? You know, and I'm working on these big problems now. Might not solve them, but boy, the motivation is there. And it's not to make any money. Yeah, it's such an interesting paradox because I I remember um, we had my friend Yannick Silver here as a guest and, you know, he had a a coaching client and he asked him, you know, you know, like, what's the money amount? And he said a billion dollars. And he's like, well, what are you going to do with it? What do you need a billion dollars for? And it's really eye opening when you actually sit down and make the list of all the things that you would spend money on. And suddenly you, you hit a point where you're like, wait a minute, that's everything. And, you know, my ongoing joke is always like, there's only one thing I need more than a billion dollars for, and that's to buy an NBA basketball team, which is a ridiculous goal considering I don't watch sports on TV, but I love the idea of owning a sports franchise and I play NBA 2K religiously. <laughs> okay, so there's your thing. Like, I mean, if you want to own a basketball team, good luck. I mean, that that's yeah, that's a reason for unlikely. getting money. Like, like it, no, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I get offered sports teams occasionally. You know, the, the guy's... There's a short list of us, right? Suckers who might want to buy this stuff. Um, (laughs) And and, and I thought about it. Like, would I like to own my own football team? You know, like, and and, and I was like, I I just, it it wasn't something for me. I was just like, and I'm not saying I can afford one right now, but uh, I think that's cool if you want it. All right. Get it. Do it. No judgment. All right. But. I don't think most people want that stuff. I mean, have you been in a 20,000 square foot house? They're ridiculous. You never see any of your family. <laughs> now, if that's your job, get a separate house. Get like two cheap houses and set, you know, put a yard between you and the kids. You know, hire a nanny, wall them off. I don't know, prep school, boarding school, no school, homeschool, freaking live on the road. There are solutions to these that don't, they're not money problems. Yeah. Uh, the number of problems that are that are truly money problems are are I mean and and look I've had money problems I've I know what it's like to not be able to pay a bill uh, I know it's like to like I used to pop I used to pop start my car because I couldn't afford a starter on it so I parked it at the top of the hill and you know I'd get in I would push it and you know it always started so I was like oh I'm good you know <laughs> um, but the if you're it, here's the thing, if we're talking about innovation, back to the the subject of innovation. If you believe me that innovation is unpleasant, which I I, I really think true innovation is. I really think not knowing what's going to work and having a lot of failure and having a lot of uncertainty is uncomfortable for almost every sane human. So if you're going to live in that world, what's going to keep you going? Because you got to keep going, or you're never going to solve the problem. And you don't know how many steps there are to the solution. So you got to keep going and going and going. You just don't know. 
What's going to keep you going? Well, the answer is probably not money. At some point you'll go, God, it doesn't matter. I'm sleeping indoors. I got a television. I got Netflix. You know, I'm, I'm living pretty well. I'll just go get a job. I'll quit. I'll stop. Right. But if the reason is, Hey man, I'm fixing a problem with the world and I'm going to keep going until this problem is solved. Then your motivation is almost infinite. Yeah. Wow. Well, I have two final questions. Um, the, you know, and I intentionally did not want to make this about Jack Dorsey because I wanted to talk to you about your book, but I am curious because you read sort of the, the mythology, right? Which is like, you know, magazine cover articles and all this. But just out of morbid curiosity, how in the hell does somebody run two companies simultaneously that are both massive? And like, what makes somebody like that tick, I guess, is really the question. And you saw him when he was, you know, in high school. Is that something you could predict from the outset? No, 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 no. I mean, look, you could run two companies, too, if you don't have a family. Right. I mean, Jack's a very solitary person and he's very thoughtful. He's very smart. Um, and if you're a good CEO and you have excellent people around you, they don't want 40 hours of your input, right? What they want is knowing that you've got their back when it happens. And Jack was very good at that. And, um, you know, what I do, you're not married, so uh, this isn't going to be as great a, a, a rhetorical question, but you like, Ask yourself. I, I talk to my people, who, my friends who run public companies, and uh, and I say, okay, you can get rid of your family obligations and run another public company. Have your workload gone up or down? And like, oh yeah, down. <laughs> so running two public companies is, at least in my simple surveys, less work than running one public company and having a family at the same time, which many people do. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but look, Jack's super capable and, uh, you know, he set up his life to be able to do it and he enjoys it. Like if you enjoy it, then it doesn't feel like work and you can clock 60 hours and, you know, like Jack got in trouble once at Square because, you know, the people were complaining that we were working him too hard. And Jack was like, I take a vacation every weekend. Like he sent out this email that says, I get a vacation every weekend. I don't work on Sundays. And, and people were like, like, I got nannies. I got, I got Childcare, I got a car seat, you know, like go to hell with your weekend vacation. Like <laughs> I need two weeks, I need two weeks in August, you know? Um, so, uh, but I mean, no, he did a, I, I think he did a great job, you know, he did a great yeah. job. Those companies, well, Square's continuing to kick ass and look what Twitter did under Jack, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. This is amazing. I feel like I could talk to you all day. This was super fun. I, I so appreciate how prepared you were. Yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I, I just knew. I mean, if I have an hour to talk to somebody like you, I want to make sure that I learn as much as I can. Um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Uh, I think it's the ability to be wrong. Mm. I think if you're willing to go and bump along in failure, you eventually stumble on success. And then that becomes something that you're credited with that is unique. That to me is the moment of magic when you're, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're right. Okay. But can you be wrong five times in a row or 20? You know, that's the ability that that's what, that's what makes something 
or someone noteworthy. Unfortunately, you can't aim for the noteworthy thing because that's the fame again. Like if, if, you're, if your goal is to be noteworthy, you're going to quit. <laughs> it's a weak motivator. But if you get it, it's, uh, it's magical because you will, you will have traversed this, this dark path and come out on the other end. And that gives you a little bit of strength for the next dark path you might walk. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything that you're up to? So um, I don't use social media. Yes, I have Instagram accounts. Those aren't me. And I, I make. I, 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 I'll tell you this. When I when I wrote the book, the publisher was like, "You got to do social media." I was like, "I'm not doing social media." He's like, "You got to do social media." I was like, "Okay, can I hire a team?" So I, I've got a bunch of 26 year olds that tweet on my behalf. And if you see the hashtag Happy Place, uh, like that's not me. I don't use that phrase, right? <laughs> um, um, so ignore all social media from Jim McKelvey. Um, I do have a website, uh, jimmckelvey.com, where I put some articles, some blogs, and some some thoughts. Um, generally, I'm a pretty private person. Uh, so if you're super interested in what I'm doing, you can check out what Invisibly is doing, uh, invisibly.com. You can check out uh, Launch Code is a phenomenal thing. If you want to learn how to become a programmer, we'll teach you how to do it for free and get you a job. So launchcode.org, um, you know, play with Square, uh, come blow glass. Uh, I've got a book on glass blowing you can read. Like there's all sorts of ways that if you share my interest that we'll run, run into each other, but I don't broadcast my life on social. So uh, jimbokelvies.com is about as close as you can get. But um, I would say this, like I, uh, people who read the book and then approach me, uh, I like if they've really read it and understood it, it's it's easy to find me. Okay. I'm easy <laughs> to find. Um, and they find me and I'll usually respond uh, because they have shown me the courtesy of, you know, actually sort of thinking about stuff that I think is important. Um, and I do think these ideas are important. Like that's the whole reason I wrote this. It wasn't, it wasn't for any money. Okay. <laughs> and it wasn't because I enjoyed spending three hours of my life, like re editing and editing and editing. It was that, look, somebody has got to say this stuff and I'd never heard it said before. And I wish somebody had told me when I was way younger that there was this difference between you when, when you're inventing and when you're copying it. I never drew that distinction. So I missed a lot of lessons early on. Hmm. Amazing. Um, well, like I said, this has been one of my favorite conversations of the year. I mean, I just learned so much talking to you. <laughs> what a pleasure, man. Absolutely. Trini, thank you. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.